Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lifted up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. And if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the Old Testament passage of Zephaniah. The Old Testament passage of Zephaniah and Zephaniah in chapter number 3. We're continuing with our series of the Minor Prophets, exploring these wonderful, forgotten, neglected books of the Bible. And they have a powerful message. We know that as we've been going through the Minor Prophets, that we had started with the book of Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, and now we hit the book of Zephaniah. The book of Zephaniah, including this week, only four more weeks of minor prophets yet to go. And we believe that these will be an encouragement to you as we examine God's word. And we come to now to the book of Zephaniah and chapter number three. The book of Zephaniah and chapter number three as we continue with our series, The Minor Prophets. And if you don't mind, look with me starting at verse number one. The book of Zephaniah and chapter number three. Woe to her that is filthy and polluted to the oppressing city. She obeyed not the voice. She received not correction. She trusted not in the Lord. She drew not near to her God. Her princes within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves. They gnaw not the bones till the morrow. Her prophets are light and treacherous persons. Her priests have polluted the sanctuary and they have done violence to the law. The just God is in the midst thereof. He will not do iniquity. Every morning doth he bring his judgment to light. He faileth not, but to the unjust knoweth no shame. I have cut off the nations, their towers are desolate. I made their streets waste, that none passeth by. Their cities are destroyed, so that there is no man, that there is none inhabitant. I said, surely thou wilt fear me. Thou wilt receive instruction, so their dwelling should not be cut off. However, I punished them. But they rose up early and corrupted all their doings. Therefore, wait ye upon me, saith the Lord, until the day that I rise up to the prey, for my determination is to gather the nations, that I may assemble the kingdoms, to pour upon them mine indignation, even all my fierce anger, for all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. For then I will turn to the people a pure language, that they may call upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one consent. And from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my supplicants, even the daughter of my dispersed, shall bring mine offering. In that day shall thou not be ashamed for all thy doings. For wherein thou hast transgressed against me, then I will take away out of the midst of thee them that rejoice in thy pride, and that thou shalt no more be haughty because of my holy mountain. I also... 
will also leave in the midst of thee unafflicted and poor people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel shall not do iniquity nor speak lies, neither shall they shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth, for they shall feed and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. And if you're in the habit of marking things in your Bible, would you mark a phrase that we find in the book of Zephaniah? The book of Zephaniah, chapter number 3, and notice with me in verse number 5. Zephaniah chapter 3 and verse number 5, notice this phrase, the just Lord is in the midst. The just Lord is in the midst. Let's go to the Lord together and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for you being a wonderful God. And as we come up to you today, we do pray for revival as we've been studying a lot and praying a lot. We're asking that you would show us even more about what is necessary on our part, that we may see you pour your spirit of blessing down upon us. We're asking that you would be thorough with us and that we would be a humble people ready to receive your rebuke, your correction, for you to tell us what needs to be done. Help us for the purpose that we may learn more about you and see who you are, that you are God who is high, holy, and lifted up. I'm asking that you would give us grace now. Be with my mind, be with my lips, be with the words, that everything be done for your glory and honor. Be everything directed by you and not by me. Lord, we do love you. Fill me with your precious spirit that you could draw your folks to you today. And we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, the prophet Zephaniah is, again, a smaller book and often more neglected than probably all the rest of the minor prophets. But Zephaniah is preaching at the same time as the prophet Habakkuk. We had saw Habakkuk last time. Remember, Habakkuk was praying for uh, the, his country. He was looking at all the corruption, everything that is falling apart. And he prays and he was surprised when God answered him. And God says, ye among the heathen, I'm going to do a work so wondrously that you won't believe it if I told you. What are you going to do? I'm going to send the Babylonians to come and destroy your nation. They're going to destroy your temple. They're going to kidnap your people, transport them thousands of miles away. But I'm going to use that to bring them back and work with them. He says, how's that going to work? I told you, you wouldn't believe me. And so Habakkuk is preaching. You have Jeremiah, who at a span of 40 years, he is preaching now. And Jeremiah is going up and down the streets. And he's trying to tell people to get right, get right, get right, get right. And he's preaching so much. Then you have across the river, already transported in Babylon the same time, the prophet Ezekiel, who is now pastoring the people who already... Uh, brought to Babylon and he's encouraging them and he's trying to tell them to get right and when you send letters back to the people of Jerusalem tell them to get right get right get right and now you have Zephaniah can you imagine this what kind of condition these people are on to have four writing prophets major messages with the same message get right get right get right and they didn't. Four writing prophets. Two major prophets. Two minor prophets. Preaching to the same people. The same message. Get right. Turn back to God. 
Now, an interesting thing about Zephaniah is that Zephaniah has a royal lineage. At the beginning of Zephaniah, it begins to explain where he came from. You can look at it in Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 1 on your, on your own. But basically, he traces his lineage so that his great-grandfather is godly King Hezekiah. So here's a prophet who's just not someone off the street. He comes from the palace. He is someone of royal blood. His great-great-grandfather is Hezekiah. He is a cousin of godly Josiah. And so, if you could imagine, you have Ezekiel, who's on the other side of the river, and preaching to the people who have captives. You have Habakkuk, who's inside, praying for the people. You have Jeremiah, who's been walking up and down the entire length, preaching and getting right. And now you have Zephaniah who's in the palace himself trying to work with those who inside of the palace. Get right. Get right. This isn't a message for the poor people. It's a message for all people. It's not a message for those who are in captivity. It's a message for all people. It's not a message for afflicted people. It's a message for all people to get right. To get right. Now the overall message of the book of Zephaniah is the great day of the Lord is coming soon. The great day of the Lord is coming soon. And remember, whenever it talks about the great day of the Lord, it's referring a time where God is pouring out His judgment upon His people. And He's saying it's coming soon. It's right around the corner. Now's the time to get right. You don't realize how close you are. He's trying to God is using this prophet to remind people to take seriously the upcoming judgment of God. The upcoming judgment of God is real. Which now brings me to, as we're introducing this, may I remind you that the whole purpose of the Bible is to reveal God to man. The whole purpose of it is to reveal God to man. We have 66 books of the Bible Each one of them tell us something special and unique about God. They emphasize something. Other books may hint about it, but each book has their own specific emphasis they place on God to teach us something about it. So if you could put it in this idea, can you imagine a puzzle with 66 pieces? And the whole puzzle gives us the complete revelation of what God wants us to know about himself. However, if you are missing the minor prophets, that's 12 pieces of puzzle that's gone. You strip away and say, I don't like the historical books. Well, that's another 12 pieces gone. You understand? You say, no, no, no. I only like the gospel records. That means you only have four pieces of the puzzle of 66 pieces. Each one of these pieces tell us something special and unique about God. Zephaniah is no different. What is Zephaniah telling us here? That the just God is in the midst thereof. We learn that God is a God who is just. And a God who punishes sin. It's what we learn about this. Now, some people have their own view of God. It's not a biblical view of God. But they have the view of God that maybe God is like a grandfather, salt and pepper hair, long beard, and he sees people sin and he goes, it's all right. You can't help yourself. It is fine. I love you anyways. And they have this idea that he's like an elderly grandparent who just washes away sin. No big deal. That is not the God of the Bible. 
Some people have the idea that God is like a heartbroken father. Who's just weeping. Oh I wish you wouldn't do those things. But that's fine. Whenever you decide to come back. I'll be here for you. And they have the idea that this God is helpless. And this God is just watching in horror. As the people are just doing whatever they want. And if one day maybe they wake up from their beds. And say you know what I'm going to get right with God. Oh come on. I'll take you. Now we understand that God is a God who's willing to take us. But that is not. The God of the Bible. Who is the God of the Bible? We have a God of the Bible who hates sin. And he wants people to get right with God. He doesn't want people to continue in their condition. He wants them to turn back to him. He wants them to realize that they are sinners. And they need to get right. That they've offended a holy righteous God. But God is their hope. He wants them to realize that they can't fix themselves. They can't turn over a new leaf. They can't try harder. The answer is the Lord. He is waiting for them to come to him. But he is not passive. He is actively working in their lives to get their attention. To bring them back to himself. He's taking an active role, not a passive role. He's not a parent who says, well, one day you'll get better. I'll just wait. He's a God who's willing to discipline his children so that their heart can be brought to him. With that in mind, let's examine this passage in the book of Zephaniah that we could see what is going on and learn more about our God. The first thing I'd like to bring to your attention is a polluted people. A polluted people. Notice with me in verse number one. Zephaniah chapter three and verse one. Woe unto her that is filthy. Woe unto her that is polluted. That's an interesting word. Normally we think of the word polluted as a modern term. But you understand this is a biblical term. They are polluted. Instead of being pure, they're now defiled. Instead of being clean, they are dirty. They are a polluted people. Woe unto her that is filthy. Woe unto her that is polluted. To the oppressing city. Now here it is, it's talking about the people. But we understand there's something about this pollution. What makes someone dirty? What makes someone filthy? Sin. Sin makes things dirty. And sin collects. Sin just doesn't fall off after a while. But it builds. And builds. It's almost like having someone who hasn't taken a shower and a bath in a while. That smell doesn't go away on its own. But it builds. And that dirt doesn't wash away on its own. It stays. And it cakes. And it streaks and it pollutes and it makes it filthy and it becomes nasty. And there are results of it for someone who hasn't taken a bath for a while. There are some health concerns that can come. And there are more things as that filth has a corrupting presence. Well the Bible speaks about sin that sin is a pollutant. It makes us dirty. And so if you can imagine someone who's standing before God who hasn't taken a spiritual bath in a while. Their sin has caked on. It's building and building and building. Have you ever been locked in a car with someone who hadn't taken a bath in a while? And that smell, it's revolting. 
You could smell that dirt. You guys remember the old comic Peanuts? It had a pig pen and just had that dirt going around. And we laugh at it, but you know, you could get around a person like that. And you could smell it. It's just there. Can you imagine what we smell like when we're dirty and filthy to God? He has to deal with us. He wants to be close to us. Have you ever imagined your mind? Think about, just play with me. Here's someone hasn't taken a bath in a long time. Maybe they even have open sores that are putrid and hasn't been dealt with. The pus has just been leaking and dried. The smells emanating from them is not just body odor, but it's overwhelming. But that smell of dirt, old dirt. It smells like there's rotting flesh. And they come to you and said. I want to hug you. I appreciate you so much. I love you. Is your first response to put out your arms and say, come on. Wouldn't there be a little bit of revulsion? Have you ever had been next to someone who smelled so bad you were gagging? You understand that's what it's like. God says, I want to be close to you, but you need a bath. I want you to come to me, but before you do, take a shower. Again, God is a real God. And that's what sin is like. God hates the smell of sin. It's an awful odor to him. Could you imagine hugging someone and there's so much filth on him that it actually left streaks when you put your hand on it? Would you want to touch someone like that? Back in the old days, I don't know if they still do that before, but teenagers... College kids, my day, they used to wear their sweater correctly for several days till it got dirty. Then they turn it inside out and wear it again. You remember that phase where they? Anyway. Can you imagine someone who's just wore the same clothes over and they wear it to bed and wear it the next day and they haven't changed in a while? And they say, All right, I need some comfort. Will you hug me? <laughs> I'd like to comfort you, but before I do, you've got to take care of this problem. You are polluted. You are dirty. You are nasty. I want you, with all my heart, I want you to be close to you. But I cannot. I just can't do it. Until you take a bath. Until you get clean. You are polluted. That is what our sin is like to God. You understand, this is why God is not the one, it's all right, I know you can't help to sin, but please come on. This is why God's not the type of God that says, you know what, I'm so heartbroken where you're at, but whatever you come, just come back. Sin has to be dealt with. It cannot be excused. It cannot be ignored. Because just like someone who hasn't taken a bath, it can't be ignored. It is an offense to everyone around him. Now, isn't it a weird thing how our nose are olfactory things? We can get used to a smell. And the people who stink don't smell themselves. They got used to the smell. It no longer bothers them. But everyone else they're around, it is an offensive smell. And even more so to God. So here is the picture of these people. 
They haven't taken a bath in forever. They are not spiritually right with God. They're allowing these sins to cake on more and more and more. And God says this has to be taken care of. You cannot live like this. It's affecting you. You're a polluted people. I want to be in the midst of you. I want you to be close. But there is a thing that is hindering this closeness. It's your pollution. It's your sin. Notice in verse number 2. As he lists what are these sins that are caking. What is it that is polluting these people? Notice verse number 2. It gives a list of four things. She, now it's talking about Jerusalem as a city, but remember the city, the building itself did not offend God. It's the people within. She has not obeyed the voice. What is making her polluted? She won't obey God. He won't obey God. The people won't obey God. They won't listen to God. That's a sin. God has been trying to tell you, and he's been trying to tell you, and he's been trying to tell you, and he's been trying to tell you. You won't listen. She obeyed not the voice. She received not correction. Every time God tried to correct her behavior, every time God tried to correct his behavior, every time God tried to correct the behavior of the people, they wouldn't listen. They wouldn't receive it. It's not from me. You don't know what you're talking about. Mind your own business. They just flat out ignored God when he tried to fix their behavior. Remember, they got four prophets running around pointing out this needs to be fixed. And they won't listen. She obeyed not the voice. She received not correction. She trusteth not in the Lord. Remember, this carries the idea of faith. They refused to faith in God. They refused to trust in Him. They refused to believe in Him. They refused to rely upon Him. They are trying to take care of things themselves. And as we had saw last week, the opposite of faith is pride. This passage is going to refer to the same thing. You're going to see at the end of the passage, pride, 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 pride. What's keeping them from getting right in the first place? Pride, pride. I don't need God. I don't need to be close to God. I don't need to be right with God. I'm fine as I am. That's pride. Notice the fourth thing in verse number two. She obeyed not the voice. She received not correction. She trusted not in the Lord. She drew not near to her God. Do you know that's an sin to God? That's an offense to God. Because God has done so much for you. What did Jesus, God do for you? He sent his only begotten son to die for you. He died on the cross. He died a horrible death. And he rose again the third day. God commendeth his love towards us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He showed you so much love by dying for you on the cross. And you say, huh, no big deal. Not for me. I don't care. No wonder that's a sin and an offense to God. I want you to be close. Why did Jesus die on the cross anyways? Because God desired fellowship with you. He sent Jesus to die on the cross so that way you could be cleansed from your sin. So you could be close to him. I'd rather not have the bath. I'd ra- I'm fine as I am. I'd rather be dirty than be close to you, God 
that is an offense to God. Because God's desire is to be close with all of his people. Notice as we continue to go on, notice verse 3. Her princes, so the rulers, within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves. They gnaw not the bones till the morrow. Here it's giving a, a picture of the political leaders. The political leaders are all after themselves. They don't care about everyone else. They're about themselves feeding their own hunger, feeding their own bellies, feeding their own desires. Notice verse 4. Her prophets, so now the spiritual leaders, her prophets and priests, her prophets are light and treacherous persons. Her priests have, notice the word, polluted the sanctuary. The second time in just uh, these four verses, the word polluted is used. Her priests have polluted the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. Now notice that picture. To do violence to the law. That they've actually harmed the law. They've twisted. They've, they've done purposeful, intentional harm to it. We're going to cover what they're doing in just a second. But you understand this is a big deal. Notice with me if you don't mind. <laughs> it goes down in verse number 6. I have cut off the nation's. Their towers are desolate. I've made their streets waste. And none passes by. Her cities are destroyed. So there is no man. There is none that inhabit it. And I said, surely, surely they will fear me. Surely they will receive instruction. So their dwelling shall not be cut off. However, I punished them. But they rose up early and corrupted. That word corrupted carries the same family is polluted. They corrupted their ways. God says, I've done everything I can to get their attention over and over and over. And they refused to obey. They refused to get it right. They refused to get things. God has been saying, this is what to do. This is how to fix it. This is how to deal with it. And they refused. They refused. I remember several years ago, I was knocking on doors. And as I knocked on doors, there was a lady who answered that. And I said, uh, as I introduced and the conversation went on, I said, well, are you 100% sure if you die today that you would go to heaven? She goes, I am. I know for sure. Praise the Lord. There's not a lot of people know that for sure. If uh, Jesus met you outside the gates of heaven and asked, why should I let you go to heaven? What would you tell him? Because I'm saved. I said, well, tell me about it. She gave me a testimony of how when she was 13 years old, she accepted Christ as her Savior. And as we went in the conversation, she said this. The one thing that I don't have, though, is I don't have peace. Well, I said, well, salvation's the beginning part of it. I said, how's your Bible reading? Well, I don't have time to read my Bible. Well, you understand, if you want the peace of God, you have to spend time with Him. Yeah, I, I don't even want to read my Bible. Okay, well, what about church? Do you attend a local church? You know what? It's just a waste of my time. I, I don't want any of that. Well, let me tell you why you don't have peace. Because God is trying to give you peace and you've slapped his hand away. You said, I don't want this. No wonder you don't have peace. You can't have peace when you're purposely ignoring what God has done for you. And God's trying to draw you near. God is telling you over and over, this is how to solve your problem. You understand, we make things complicated. Here's the simple thing. Will you obey God? Yes or no? What does the Bible say? Well, I know what the Bible says, but I think I could do this on my own. No. 
Well, I don't know how to raise my kids right. What does the Bible say? Well, eh, I don't want to do that. What solution are you looking for then? Well, I want to have peace in the, the idea of that lady. Well, let me tell you what the Bible says. Well, I don't want to do that. I, I don't. Well, then you're going to be missing out on what God has offered for you. He wants you to have that. And God says, I've done all of this. I've presented this to you. I've tried to get your attention. I've told you what to do. And you say you want the results, but you don't want to go through the action. So many people are like that. They want the results. They want the happiness. They want the happy ending. But they do not want to do the work that gets them from here to there. There's no such thing as a fairy godmother waving a wand. There's no such thing as Rumpelstiltskin granting your wish. You have to be obedient to what God has given to you for him to give you the blessings he promised you. There is that relation. And God says, I want so much for you. I provided for you. I've done it all. Remember that God's always previous. He's already given you the solution. He's given you the path. And he has the end. He's the one that gives the peace. Your response is to faith him. To trust in him. And because you trust him, you'll do what he told you. It all begins with God. It's not dependent on you. It is him. And the people refuse people refuse. The Bible gives the idea that the unjust hath no shame. Notice with me in verse 5. The just Lord is in the midst thereof. He will not do iniquity. Every morning he bringeth his judgment to light. So here is this. Here is the just God who wants to be in the midst. Every day he brings judgment. Every day he gets your attention. Every day he's trying to bring you to him. Every day he's working to bring you close. Every day he's proven himself. He's not a God that's afar off. He is an active God. He's not a passive God just twiddling his thumbs, just waiting for you. He is constantly working to bring you close to him. But notice the end of verse 5. The just Lord is in the midst thereof. He will not do iniquity. Every morning doth he bring his judgment to light. He faileth not. But the unjust knoweth no shame. The unjust knoweth no shame. They got to the place where they're no longer ashamed of their sin. Interesting enough, there's a word that's only found three times in the Bible that goes along with the idea of shame, and it's the word blush. The word blush. Now, you know what a blush is. A blush is a time where people get embarrassed, and their cheeks turn rosy, that they kind of shift a little bit. There should be a blush to something. But three times in the Bible, the word blush is used and it is very powerful how the Bible uses the word blush. Hold your finger here and let's turn to the other preacher who's preaching the same time as Zephaniah and Habakkuk. Turn with me to the book of Jeremiah in chapter number 6. Jeremiah chapter 6. And let's see Jeremiah's message dealing with this. Same thing. Remember, the unjust knoweth no shame. That's what it was said. The unjust knoweth no shame. That they can no longer, may I use the word blush? 
They are no longer ashamed of their sin. They're so used to sin. They're so used to their pollution. They're so used to their filth. It doesn't bother them anymore. I've been sinning the same way for years. I'm used to it now. Notice in verse uh, chapter 6. Jeremiah chapter 6. Notice with me in verse 14. Now the same message is repeated in chapter 8 as Jeremiah is delivering it. But we're just going to hit this chapter here. But it says the same exact thing in chapter 8. But notice with me Jeremiah chapter 6. Notice with me verse 14. They have healed also the hurt of my daughter of my people. What's the next word class? Slightly. Slightly. They have helped. They have healed the hurt of my daughter of my people. Slightly. How? Saying peace. Peace. When there is no peace. Now remember it talked about the priest and the prophets. How they had polluted. And how they had messed things up in the book of Zechariah. What are they talking about? They're talking about this. What they're doing to the people is the people come up to the prophet, to the priest and say, You know what? I feel like I'm failing God. I feel like I'm missing out. And the priest says, There, there. You are fine as you are. God loves you anyways. Go ahead and live your life. And so the people said, well, okay, if God's, God's fine the way that I live, then I'm going to go continue to live the way that I do. And so they have healed the hurt of my daughter slightly. They felt bad. God, remember, God is working every day. He is actively trying to draw them near. But instead of giving the message of the Bible... They give them a false message. It says God is fine the way that you live. However you live, you go ahead. By the way, right now, in churches within 30 miles of us, lots of them, they're giving the message slightly. They're everywhere. There are messages right now where the preacher is saying, we don't preach on sin here. What that does is that quelches people's self-esteem and personality. We preach a positive message here that God loves you. By the way, God does love you. But it doesn't matter how you live your life. God loves you. You are fine as you are. And by the way, that's a good message to feel if you're feeling convicted. God's fine with me. I can live however. Great, let's do that. But what they really need to hear is, no, there are things in your life that you need to fix. Because God loves you, he wants to be close to you. You cannot continue in the same manner. You know, the biblical loving message is to say that there's some things that need to be fixed. Take a bath. Sometimes the most loving thing you can tell a person is, go take a bath. You might not smell how bad you are, but go take a shower. I'm trying to help you out now. But notice again. They have healed also the hurt of my daughter, of my people slightly. Saying peace, peace when there is no peace. Remember Zephaniah, Haggai and Jeremiah are all saying the great day of the Lord is coming. Destruction is coming. Babylon's coming to destroy our city. And the people said God will never destroy our city. We're God's people. That's all we need. God loves us as we are. And those three prophets and one on the other side of the river are saying no. God is not happy. God is upset. You refuse to get right. He wants you to be close. No. Peace. Peace. 
when there is no peace. Notice this. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? Nay, they were not at all ashamed. Neither could they blush. Neither could they blush. You know what happened to these people? They lost their blush. They're no longer ashamed when they commit sin. Do you know about 50 years ago, some of you might remember, 50 years ago, it was a shame to be publicly intoxicated in public. If someone was publicly intoxicated, they would be ashamed. The whole town would go, oh, the drunkard's out. Today, people brag on it. Man, I was so wasted this weekend, and I did this, and we did this, and I threw up all over. Guess what? This weekend, I'm going to do it again. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? Nay, they were not at all ashamed. Neither could they blush. They got so used to their sin, it no longer bothers them anymore. By the way, when someone lost their blush, it is a bad thing. When they've sinned so much, it doesn't bother them that they're away from God. There's, no, I'm fine. You're not fine. I don't need to get right, I'm good. You're not good. You are in the most dangerous spot ever. At least if you're ashamed, you can get things right. You want to get things right. You know that there's something wrong. But when people are no longer ashamed... They're no longer convicted. They can no longer blush. There is something horribly bad wrong. Horribly bad wrong. Notice as it goes on, verse 5, 15. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? Nay, they were not at all ashamed. Neither could they blush. Therefore they shall fall among them that fall at the same time. At the time that I visit them, they shall be cast down. Again, same message. The judgment of God is coming. Judgment of God is coming. The judgment. And they're going to fall. They could be a believer, according to this passage here. They could be a believer. They're still going to follow the same destruction. Because they're not right with God. Notice verse 16. Thus saith the Lord, stand ye in the ways and see and ask for the old paths. Wherein is the good way and walk therein. And ye shall find rest for your souls. Now, that's not hard to ask. He says, listen, ask for the old paths. Walk therein. Find what I've given to you. The old-fashioned Bible. The old-fashioned way of doing things. Find those paths. And guess what? You could find rest for your souls. You could find true peace. But you know what they said? But they said, we will not walk therein. We don't want the old ways. Well, then you're also rejecting peace. No, but I want peace. You cannot have peace without following after God. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Why are there so many Christians that are miserable? This. This. God promised that you can have peace for your souls. He promised you you can have peace in your life. You can have the peace of God from the peace of God. Why don't people have it? This. We will not walk therein. But listen here, preacher. I understand what you're trying to do. I don't want any of that Bible stuff. I, I got it my own. 
I've got problems in my home. I want my home fixed. What does the Bible say? You're missing out. You're missing out. God's trying to get your attention. Why don't you have peace? God offered it to you. He promised it to you. I talked to a preacher the other day. He says, I've been going around America in different churches. He says, why don't American Christians have peace? I've gone to church after church after church. Why don't they have peace? This. They don't want the old ways. They don't want to walk the old paths. They think their way of things of doing it are better. And they're missing out. And the key phrase is that they've lost their blush. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? Nay, they were not at all ashamed. Neither could they blush. As we turn back to Zephaniah, (coughs) we're going to start going a little bit quicker now. The book of Zephaniah, Notice back with me in Zephaniah chapter 3. Now, he's getting their attention. He's telling them that they're a polluted people. He says that they're corrupted. And he explains why. You've lost your blush because you're no longer ashamed. you're, You're so used to your sin. It's been built up. You don't even see the things going on. And he's saying that the great day of God is coming. Judgment is coming. And that's the whole theme of Zephaniah. But God is always great through the minor prophets. It may start with judgment. But it always gives message of hope at the end. And there is a message of hope as he's dealing. There's going to be Babylonians who are going to come and take away your country. But guess what? I'm not done with you yet. I've got plans for you. Notice in verse number 9 as he now switches over to the millennial kingdom. uh, Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 9. For then I will turn to the people a pure language. That they may call upon the name of the Lord their God to serve him with one consent. Now, right before the millennial kingdom, he's going to destroy all those who don't accept him. But when he sets the millennial kingdom, this gives us just a clue that it's almost innocuous. You almost miss it. But he's going to set up a pure language. This carries the idea that in the millennial kingdom, there's going to be one language spoken. What language is that, preacher? Well, it is my opinion. It's going to be Hebrew. So all those who wanted to learn a brand new language, you will in the millennial kingdom. If you want to get a head start, you could start studying. Now, Hebrew is difficult. I've taken it. Greek was easy. <laughs> Hebrew is different, mainly because you're reading the different direction. And there's all kinds of things, especially biblical Hebrew with vowel points or the lack of vowel points and all this stuff. I mean, there's a lot of things to it. But guess what? When you get to the millennial kingdom, you're going to have a pure language. Now, you say, why? What, what is this a big deal? Well, notice that the verse 9. For then I will turn them to uh, the people of a pure language that they may call upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one consent. That word consent carries the idea of accord, togetherness, an agreement together. By the way, we see the opposite of this when the language was split. Before the flood, there was one language. After the flood, there was one language until we got to an event found in Genesis 11, we're not turning there, called the Tower of Babel. And the Tower of Babel, the people with one consent joined together to build a tower in defiance of God's command. God says, separate into all the world and be fruitful and multiply. They said, no, we're not going to obey God. We're going to do our own thing. We're going to build a tower where we could rally around. And so the people worked together. Why did the tower stop? 
because God confused their languages, took one language, turned it to 70, and now they could not work together because there was a language barrier. In the millennial kingdom, people can serve God with one consent without misunderstanding because there's only going to be one language. God's a smart God, and he's going to allow them to serve with one consent. Isn't that going to be a wonderful time where we're serving God together on the same page? Because of many reasons, one of them is a pure language. As we continue on, we see one last thing I want to show you in this passage. Pride that is removed. Pride that is removed. Notice with me as we continue on verse 11. In that day, so dealing with a millennial kingdom, thou shalt not be ashamed for all those doings, for wherein thou hast transgressed against me. For then I will take... Oh, uh, away out of the midst of thee, them that rejoice in thy pride, that thou shall be no more haughty, haughty because of my holy mountain. This word haughty carries the idea of pride, but it's carrying the idea that in the millennial kingdom, as we put other passages together, God is going to give us brand new bodies that can no longer sin against God. And God's going to set it up where we don't have to depend on pride because God's going to be right there. That we're going to have our brand new bodies for the Hebrew people who are going to be born in the millennial kingdom. That pride isn't going to have to be a big thing and the people aren't going to try to pump up their pride. Again, why is pride a big deal? Because pride keeps us from obeying God. Either God is right or I am right. The opposite of faith according to the book of Habakkuk is pride. Either I'm trusting in God or I'm trusting in myself. In the millennial kingdom, he's getting rid of all the reasons to trust in yourself. You could trust in God. Look in him. I'm going to remove all those reasons. Verse 12. And I will also leave in the midst of thee an afflicted and poor people. And they shall trust in the name of God. God is going to make it so anyone could trust in God because of what he's done. The remnant of Israel shall not do iniquity nor speak lies. Neither shall a deceitful tongue be found of their mouth. For they shall feed and lie down and none shall make them afraid. Notice that word deceit. Remember that pride and deceit are often found together. Pride and lying. Remember pride is based off of lying. You're lying to yourself about who you are and who God is. That's awful pride. You're lying to yourself. But as I said earlier, that word blush is used three times. Jeremiah 6 and Jeremiah chapter 8 say the same thing. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? Nay, they were not at all ashamed. Neither could they blush. But there's one more passage that uses the word blush. And if you don't mind, let's turn there together. Turn with me to the book of Ezra. The book of Ezra and chapter number 9. Now, that is found inside of the historical books. If you find Psalms and turn to the left, Psalms, Job, Esther, Nehemiah, Ezra. Ezra chapter number 9. Now, in Ezra chapter 9, this happens after the, the destruction of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was destroyed in uh, 586 BC. The people were hauled away and they were in Babylon for 70 years. At 536 BC, Cyrus the Great rose to power, sent the Hebrew people, allowed them to go back and build their temple. Well, they built their temple for a little while, but they also started to fall back into some of the same habits of sin and getting back from disobeying God. And so now the book of Ezra happens. Ezra has just heard about the people committing a great sin. And so he comes to God 
And I want you to look at the prayer of Ezra. Ezra is the prayer that I pray. I go and actually take the same words of scripture when I'm praying for revival, when I'm praying for God to work. And I want you to look for yourself in the book of Ezra chapter number nine. Ezra chapter number nine. Notice with me in verse six as he's now beginning to pray. Uh, Verse five for context sake. And at the evening sacrifice, I, Ezra, arose up from my heaviness, having rent my garment and my mantle, I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands unto the Lord my God. And I said, oh my God, I am ashamed and blush. You see, he got his blush back. He's ashamed when they sinned as a people. He's ashamed because of sin has come back. By the way, when you come to the place where you're ashamed of sin, you are willing to get it right. He said, oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift up my face to thee, my God, for our iniquities are increased over our head and our trespasses are grown up to the heavens. Since the day of our fathers have we been in a great trespass unto this day. For our iniquities have we, our kings and our priests, have been delivered unto the hands of the kings of the land. To the sword, to the captivity, to a spoil, and to the confusion of face as it is this day. And now, for a little space, grace hath been showed from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant of escape, to give us a nail in his holy place that God may lighten our eyes and may give us a little reviving in our bondage. Let me pause here. He's saying, God, you've given us a little space of your grace. You've given us a space where we have a relief from the judgment we truly deserve and you've allowed us not to have the judgment. You've given us a place where we have the opportunity to serve you. When it talks about having a nail in the temple, he said, you've given us a space to work. You've given us something to do. You've given us in this space here to work and you've given us a little reviving in our bondage. We need reviving. And it comes because we've got our blush back and we're willing to get right with God with our sins. Remember as we talk about that revival passage, 2 Chronicles 7, 14, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven forgive their sins, and heal their land. If we are truly wanting revival, there are two parts of this message that are brought up. Humble ourselves. Lord, you're right and I'm wrong. And turn from our wicked ways. Unless we are willing to recognize that what we're doing is wrong, we can't get right. Unless we're saying the way that I've been doing things hasn't worked, We won't get right. We have to turn from our wicked ways. We have to take a spiritual bath. Notice it goes on in verse 9. For we were bondmen, yet our God hath not forsaken us in our bondage, but hath extended mercy to us. He says, we deserve stuff, but God gave me mercy. And extended mercy to us on the side of the kings of Persia. To give us a reviving 
to set up the house of our God, to repair the desolations thereof, and to give us a wall in Jerusalem. He says, Lord, you've given us a space. You've used us. You revived us. Notice both of those times of reviving in this passage in 8 and 9, both deal that God has revived us so we can do his work. Revived us so we could be useful to you. Verse number 10. And now our God. What shall we say after this? For we have forsaken thy commandments. He says we have no excuse. People usually have excuses. When we get to the place where we say. You know what I have no excuse why I sinned. I messed up. I was wrong. I cannot excuse my actions. We were wrong. That's part of humbling ourselves. You could admit that you're wrong, but excuse your sin, you're not believing that you're wrong. I was wrong. I messed up. I shouldn't have done that. Period. No explanation needed. He goes on and gives some things here. I want you to jump with me to verse number 13. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great trespass, seeing that thou, our God, hath punished us less than our iniquities deserve. May I pause there? Isn't that a true statement? You know what we deserve? We deserve hell. And you know what God has given us? Less than what we deserve. We don't deserve anything good. Part of what sickens God is this entitlement. I deserve payment. I deserve this to help. I deserve peace. You deserve nothing but hell, dear friend. We're not entitled to anything. We deserve a lot more than what we got. God was gracious to us. He was merciful to us. And after showing this grace and mercy... Verse 14, should we again break thy commandments? After you showed us grace, after you showed us mercy, after you punished us less than we deserve, how can we go back and disobey your commandments? Notice what he says in here. Uh, should we again break thy commandments and join in affinity with the people of these abominations? Would thou not be angry with us until thou hast consumed us so there should be no remnant of escaping? You know what we deserve? You forgave us of our sins. We said thank you. And we realize that you give us a grace and you give us reviving so we can serve you. And then we go and do the same thing again that we deserve. He said, you know what? We deserve for you just to fry us now. We deserve. I mean, you have every right just to wipe us out when we go back into the same sin you just forgave us over. This is a great prayer of revival because we have to humble ourselves and we have to turn from our wicked ways. And it only comes by something that is called confession. What is confession? Confession is not telling on yourself. It's agreeing with God with something he already knows. God, you know you've given me less than I deserve. I'm just admitting that. God, you know I deserve a lot more. God, you know that you've given me a space of mercy. And you know I don't deserve anything when I go back to that sin. I deserve to be wiped out. There's nothing I can do about it. That's what I deserve. I'm confessing I messed up. And I didn't mess up a little bit. I messed up a lot bit. My sin is awful to you. 
one more passage, the book of First John. Why is confession so important? I'm tying it together. Here's the bow. Let's put it together. First John chapter 1. First John chapter 1. Remember, confession is not telling on yourself. It's agreeing with God with what he has already done. Why is confession so important? 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins. Now notice that word sins. In the book of uh, 1 John, the idea of singular and plural important. Well, the idea of sin in the singular carries the idea of our sin as a whole. Sins, plural in the Bible, deals with our individual sins. So notice this. If we confess our individual sins. This isn't the prayer of salvation saying, I'm a sinner. I'm acknowledging that. This is where you're confessing your individual sins. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins individually. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is how a Christian takes a bath. By going to God and saying, God, I agree with you with what I did was wrong. I have no excuse for it. Lord, I'm admitting I'm wrong. And you know what he does? He forgives us. But then he cleanses us. It's like having a child who right before Sunday, you're getting ready to go and their beautiful dress, a young lady, beautiful dress, hair done nice, and they go play in the mud. Mud's all over. And they come in, oh, why are you in the mud again? Why? I don't know. I'm sorry. Well, that's fine. We got to go to church. Let's go. Before you take her to church, you go clean her up. You redo her hair. You put on a new garment. You cleanse her. It's not the idea where you're forgiven. God also cleanses us. If you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Remember, they had a polluted people. What was polluting them? Sin. How do we get the sin taken care of? We confess it. God forgives us. And then he cleanses us. This is how to be clean and right to God. Is to admit your sins. To agree with him with what he already said. This is part of revival for us to get as thoroughly right with possible. And when I say thoroughly right, that means you confess your individual sins. By the way, to stay close to God, you have to have frequent showers. That means that if you want to stay close to God, when you commit a sin and it's brought to your mind... You confess it right then and there. You don't let it build up. Take care of it right then and there. This is how to stay close to God. This is how to be close with Him. This is how to have that peace with Him. Is to stay right with God. To take those showers every time you get dirty. Not to let it build up. Because the more it builds up, the more of a distance there's going to be between you and Him. And before you could come back to Him, He wants you to come back. You have to take the shower. You have to be cleansed. We confess our sins. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to help you. I'm telling you that we're in a world full of sin and we're our sinners. But God wants you to be close and he's done so much. He is not passive. He is active in trying to get your attention. 
What's the result? Why is he trying to do it? Not to make you miserable. He's trying to get you into the bathtub. He's trying to help you to be clean and not be a polluted people. Let me tell you, this isn't a bad message. This is a wonderful message. But we have to deal with our sins. I'm sorry to tell you in case you didn't realize this, you are a sinner. And you need to take a bath. And if you're saved, you've already been forgiven of your sins. Let me tell you, you could get clean right now. Get thoroughly right with God. Confess your sins individually. Not as a blanket statement, I'm a sinner, forgive me of my sins. Name them off. Be honest with God. And the more that you name honestly, the cleaner you will be. God wants to be a God, just Lord, in the midst of his people. Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920 530-6308. Once again, that number is 920-530-6308. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you. Thank you.